Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is just a reminder that everything on the podcast is intended to be informational, educational, and entertaining. This is no way a substitute for therapy or the therapeutic process. If you find yourself in need of more direct support, please reach out for professional help. Or if you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or call 911. Hey everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Today, my special guest is an actor, Miss Gabrielle Thomas. How are you, Gabrielle? I'm good. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you for joining me. So I'm going to start with you like I do all of my guests and ask, what is your labor of love? So I would definitely have to say that my labor of love would be performing. Um, It's just the one thing that doesn't feel like work when I do it and it just I don't know there's just nothing there's no feeling that matches being on stage and just feeling passionate about the work that you're putting out there okay so how did performance become a labor of love for you where did it start I think I've kind of always been interested in performing but I didn't really take it seriously until college I um went to school originally for sociology and I was so excited about it. She's like, oh my gosh, gonna learn about the brain. So cool, so exciting. And then I took my first methods class and I was like, I don't like this at all. Like, I'm not gonna do this anymore. And then in the same, um, at the same time of me taking my first like sociology classes, I was doing a cabaret. And that was just the first time since I started college where I was just like, I'm having fun. I'm enjoying myself. I feel good. And that was the moment where I realized this is what I need to be doing. I can't come to college and try to do something else because I think that other people are going to respect me more if I don't do performance as a career. Like This is what I have to do. So. And when in your college career did you make that decision? Uh, my freshman year. Like, I don't know, four months into it. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to note that like that really does require a solid one support system, but two, also a pretty profound sense of self, because Mm -hmm. I would say the vast majority of people who are going to higher education are going because they are uh, conditioned to believe they are supposed to, and they need to, and they should, Mm -hmm. and they go in the direction that they, uh, that they are supposed to, or that people have kind of socialize them towards, um, stay away from things that they've been told to stay away from. So talk a little bit about, there are a lot of narratives around performers, For right? Sure. <laughs> so there's the the starving artist mm-hmm. and uh, there's the, so what are you going to do with that degree? You know, all of those kind of microaggressive, um, <laughs> you know, um, what's the word? Um, not straight aggressive, but, um, you know, Covert aggression. It's not a hard word. Y'all help me out. Um, You know, passive aggressive. That was a struggle, y'all. I had to pull that one out. Yeah. So passive aggressive, microaggressive, like these things that people would say and do. Talk a little bit about what that, if you experienced that, because I know you have family support, but what did that look like from like others? Um, So I think I've been conditioned 
to say what my survival job is first before I tell people I'm an actor. So literally yesterday I went to the doctor and she was like, so what do you do again? I was like, yeah, I'm a marketing assistant, but I, I'm also an actor. Mm. Even though I have not stepped into the office since COVID-19. So I'm technically not even a marketing assistant right now. But I just, in my brain, I'm just like, people don't necessarily respect artists. And there are a lot of people who, you know, say they're an actor or say they're a singer and they're not really doing anything. So there's always like that idea in the back of my head that if I tell someone I'm an actor first, are they going to think like, well, you're in Cincinnati, so what really could you be doing? You know, Mm -hmm. then I have to be like, well, I really live in New York. Like, there's just this whole, like, you're always trying to prove your career choice to people. And I, I don't know, I don't necessarily get that from my family, but I do feel like I get it in the outside world. And I think it's just, I don't know. Even if people don't necessarily say like, well, what are you going to do with that? I just automatically know that they're thinking that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's it's toxic. It's a toxic mindset for sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, just kind of from a how our bodies and brain collaborate for Mm -hmm. survival perspective, going into any situation where you know you're going to have to talk about it, your cortisol levels are going to increase. That's Mm. the stress hormone. It's going to be more stressful, which means your sympathetic nervous system is probably going to be activated. And so how you hear things, how you perceive things are altered just because you're in that state. Anytime we find that we're going to go into a situation that requires us to um, validate or, you know, have to prove our value in some way. And so there is a lot of overlap with this in just how people show up in the world based on their identities. Mm-hmm. Um, so we live in a world where the dominant narrative or the way I like to describe it is like a word document. You know, mm-hmm. you go into word and everything is set, the margins, the font, the size, everything. And if you want to make it something different, you have to intentionally go in and change it. Well, the dominant narrative and the, you know, the default setting in our country is white, male, heterosexual, cisgender, Christian, slender body, middle class. Um, And anything that falls outside of that is other. Mm -hmm. And people can say like, you know, well, yeah, it's different, but it's not bad. And that's an individual distinction. But culturally and societally, anything that's other or different usually comes with some uh, judgment of better or worse. Mm -hmm. And so when people feel othered or they know they're going to go into a situation where they might be othered, bam, cortisol increases, Mm -hmm. performance decreases. So um, in some ways, so this references back to Claude Steele, who wrote a book called uh, Whistling Vivaldi. And he talks about stereotype threat, which is pretty much exactly what I just said. Mm. Anytime you go into a situation and you uh, are faced with the the belief or know that you're going to or you might in some way fulfill a stereotype or lean into that, cortisol goes up. And so he did some research, a lot of research, but a couple of the examples are um, women who took the SAT who were asked to identify their gender before taking the test did statistically worse than women who identified their gender at the end of the test because stereotypically women are not, Oh, specifically in areas of math and science. 
um, because stereotypically women are not as good at math and science. Mm-hmm. Um, also some research with white men who were going to be competing athletically mm-hmm. did statistically worse when they were in a waiting room with African-American men and told that they were going to be gauged on their athletic ability. So again, it, it, it starts to take away from our individual abilities and goes to what's the dominant narrative. And so often what we believe about ourselves is what we've been told to believe. So that that's what I hear you saying. Oh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm a marketing assistant. I do this thing on the side when your true passion and heart and nothing feels as good as performing. Exactly. That sucks. Yeah. I mean, you see it. I don't know if you follow many like aspiring actors on the internet but that i feel like that's why every time you get a role you're like on facebook like hey just you know i just got cast in something so people are like oh okay she's actually you know doing something it's just always not necessarily needing the validation but like letting people know like okay like this is serious for me i don't Mm -hmm. know so people take it serious no that's good i i thought you know i don't I wouldn't say that, you know, my role as a therapist, that that sounds cool or mm. prestigious, like, oh, yeah, that sounds like something. I couldn't imagine something that I was so dedicated to, people only considered a hobby. But I know that that happens yeah. for a lot of people. And that's artists across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, and working with these belief systems and worldviews that we have um, that that is not a sustainable way to make an, an, a living, which then leads to it has little value and you need to do something better and all of that stuff. So yeah, that's really real. And I know that my listeners who are artists um, in some shape or form can really relate to that. Mm. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, how oppression, mm-hmm. so racism, sexism, um, transphobia, homophobia, Mm -hmm. ableism. How do you recognize these forms of oppression showing up in the world within acting? So the first thing that just popped up into my mind would be inappropriate casting, um, specifically for um, people who are, or roles that are written for transgendered people or anyone of the LGBTQ plus community. There are times when it's, and this really happens in Hollywood a lot, where these roles are cast by cis, straight actors. And it's time and time again, these people are like, there are plenty of people in the LGBTQ plus community that are actors. Like, why aren't you hiring these people to tell their story? And it's just like, again, in another sense that, you know, cis, white, able-bodied people are just like, barging their way in spaces that they don't necessarily belong in. And granted, that doesn't really happen as much when it comes to race because that's kind of like an obvious thing. Like if a, if a straight actor is playing a person, a, a gay character, you really have to like search, like, is this person gay? And some people don't put their sexuality on the internet, so you might not never know. But it's very obvious if a person, a white person is playing a role that was written for an Asian person, you know? Mm -hmm. So that, it doesn't happen as much when it comes to race, but it definitely does, there is definitely inappropriate casting that happens. And in terms of race, there are times where, you know, people 
perform songs or perform monologues that are written for black people. And there are times when it's just like, these words do not sound correct coming out of a white mouth. Like African, <laughs> African-American vernacular just does not sound right coming out of a white girl's mouth from Arkansas, you know? And it's just like, if there's so many times when I, my friends, me included, have had to tell people like, I don't necessarily think this is the right song from you. This is Home from the Wiz, but you can sing somewhere over the rainbow from the Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I feel like a lot of people sometimes don't get that we're not trying to gatekeep these roles and these songs and these monologues, but it's just like with the little bit that we do get, people who are quote unquote other, we want like, that's for us. it's just for us and you can't be mad of us at us for trying to protect the things that are written by us for us Mm -hmm. what that brings to mind for me is kind of a wide range of different conversations we can have under the umbrella of privilege Mm -hmm. so one part of privilege and people really get their panties in a bunch when you say the word privilege right Because it's a connotation that has come to mean something for them. So I like to talk about privilege. um, And when my colleague Luna Malbro and I do a lot of cultural humility work, we like to talk about privilege from the uh, perspective of access and restriction. Mm -hmm. What identities do you hold that give you access to certain things? And what identities do you hold that, uh, that are restrictive to certain resources? And when we think about it like that, What is interesting to me is how I think so many uh, white people in America have a hard time grasping privilege because they open the Word document and it's their life. Mm -hmm. It's the default setting. It doesn't feel... Um, like they're trying to take anything away from someone. It doesn't, um, it's not perceived and it doesn't mean that they are not working hard. You know, they need roles just like everyone else. So in some regard, um, like I can get that and I can have some empathy towards that. But it's because the Word document opens up to their life that they don't realize that everyone is not opening the Word document into their life. So that's one part of the conversation that, You know, there have been few restrictions to access that they've had. So you come into the theater world and you're like, well, I'm going to apply or I'm going to audition. And why couldn't that be? Um, But then I also think that there is this narrative of, um, you know, why can't I tell that story? Mm. And it's like, because, because you can't. (laughs) That's why. And it's hard to articulate, you know, Um, and then we start honing in on that reverse stuff that's reverse racism and it's like let's talk about power dynamics and you know there's a whole conversation but I do appreciate that something that I don't know that I've said on the podcast or not um that probably a lot of people don't know is that one of my undergraduate concentrations was theater oh okay um and how I got into it so I took a class freshman year with Professor Glenda Dickerson, who is one of the most amazing human beings I've ever met. She was the second black woman to uh, produce on Broadway. Mm -hmm. And she was teaching at the University of Michigan. And I took a class and I fell in love with her. 
So I just started taking her classes. By the time I was done, they had developed a African-American theater minor. And it was like, girl, you didn't take enough credit. You might as well take the minor. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so that was one. And I was a general studies major. So it ended up being concentrations versus major minor and loved it. Mm. I said out loud earlier this year, probably for the first time, like I want to perform mm. now. My calendar, my play, it's all full. So it's it's not at the top of the list, but there is something really special about performance that I um that I, I can feel and that I've experienced. But something I've also noticed is I understand why I'm just now saying it. Cause I've been performing my whole life. Mm-hmm. I have been a shape-shifting people pleaser Mm. since I can remember. So I am always performing. I am always being who I need to be. And and so why I know I would be an effective actor is because I've been doing it all my life. Mm -hmm. I think as I started to traverse my journey of healing and I no longer am being who I think other people need or want me to be and I'm being authentic, I'm able to say, ooh, I I want to perform because I'm no longer doing it on a regular basis. And I think I would be more effective because I can hone in on who I really am in that experience. So just talk a little bit about kind of how you manage to show up authentically um, in the roles that you project and what that's been like for you. So I honestly feel like this, you know, showing up honestly and truthfully in roles is something that it's kind of new for me. Um, I spent a lot of my time in college kind of trying to transform myself into what I thought being an actor was and just like really hitting the books and doing all the paperwork, but it just wasn't feeling real. And just recently when I moved to New York, I started taking this acting class and it focuses on a technique called Meisner technique. And it's all about just, it's all about really just feeling and being present in the moment and allowing yourself to be affected by everything that you're seeing, everything that you're hearing. And it just feels so real. And so that was the first time, like after while I was taking those classes, and I'm still taking them now, that was the first time I was just like, oh, this is what it's like to really emote and feel what these characters are feeling like. I've never been able to like be in a scene where I had to cry and actually cry. And like now it's like I'm not even thinking about crying. I feel it so much that the tears just come out. And and within being in this class and being kind of forced to really show your heart and really feel things, I have now taken that into my real life and I feel more comfortable showing my heart and feeling things and saying what's on my mind and not being embarrassed about the person that I am because that class has taught me, you know, you can feel these emotions, be who you are, and whoever is your scene partner or the person you're talking to is going to accept that and it's going to be okay. And yeah, that this class has literally changed my life. So now that's awesome. Um, <laughs> so with Professor Dickerson, as I was going through these classes, as I progressed through um, my years, more and more people started to find out about her mm-hmm. and more and more people started to take the class. And to be real, I started to kind of feel like, go away. She's mine, right. you know, like. <laughs> 
And so more and more people I knew, you know, so we're taking this class. And so by the time I got to my senior year, I had taken at least one class with her every semester Mm. that I had been there. And we were in my senior year. And now this like class is so much bigger, you know, full of these people, some I know. And I'm just like, okay, fine, I'll share her. But I distinctly remember doing this exercise. (laughs) So we were partnered in different parts of this, you know, studio classroom and it was all about, we all used one phrase mm. that we repeated, but we have to communicate our experience using this one phrase. That's exactly what we do in class. Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. And I believe the phrase was follow the morning star. Mm. That was it, right? So I'm partnered, we're doing our thing. But by this time, what am I, 20 some years old? I got all those years of people pleasing, right? Mm. So I see her in my peripheral coming. And so I'm like going to drum it up, right? right? And I should have known better. Uh, but anyway, so I go into acting mode. Oh, my goodness. And she, I loved her. She stopped the class. She was just like, Shonda, you have a partner. Stop masturbating. And I was like, first of all, what? Whoa. <laughs> You're playing with yourself and you have a partner. And I was just like, oh my God. I love that. So first of all, you just gonna call me out like that? Right. You know, but it was one of those moments where it was like, okay. Maybe one of the first moments where I was like, that backfired. She didn't want me to do what I thought she wanted me to do. She just wanted me to be real. She just wanted me to be in the moment. And I clearly remembered like my body is responding right now as if like I want to hide because she just was like called me all the way out. But when I heard you talking about that, it reminded me of that. It also reminded me that throughout my time with her, because we focused exclusively on African-American plays and literature. Mm -hmm. And we got again to the senior year. And we were doing a scene from A Raisin in the Sun. And I did my own form of typecasting myself. Some maternal wise role Mm. is the role that I always picked. And she challenged me and she said, I'm tired of seeing you play this role. And she made me reverse it. And I had to come from a perspective that was just like, I know how to be that thing. I know what people expect. I don't know how to be the chick that's about to get slapped because I pretty much told her mama ain't no God. <laughs> you know what? What am I supposed But and, and then so I had to really work on being authentic in that. And when it was done, like she had tears and it was just like, that's the realest I've ever seen you. Mm. So again, for me, I wasn't a, I wasn't striving to be a performer. And this was really I wanted to spend time with her. But I learned so much through those theater classes and the realness Um, And what's effective, what I can appreciate now understanding brain and body Mm -hmm. is when we are authentic, our mirror neurons do the rest. So mirror neurons are neurons behind our eyes that allow us to connect with another person. We can feel what they're feeling. We don't have to guess. Mm -hmm. If I start telling you a story like you felt some of that embarrassment Mm -hmm. that I had in this story more than a listener because you're. You're, we're here together. Right. You saw me and my responses and I saw your face like, oh, that's that mirror neuron. Mm. If you watch Big Bang Theory, Sheldon doesn't do that. Sheldon is on the spectrum and his mirror neurons do not work as effectively as ours do. Mm. So someone can give sarcasm. He doesn't get sarcasm because mirror neurons allow you to know that how you feel is not what you say. So if I'm like, girl, you get on my nerves. Well, 
how I feel about you comes through our mirror neurons. My words are like, whatever. But if you tell Sheldon, you get on my nerves. He's like, what did I do wrong? Mm -hmm. Right. And so we've, we've seen popular culture show us what it looks like, but we sometimes really don't realize that when an actor steps on that stage and truly feels what that character feels, because you don't have to have lived the same experiences, but there are these underlying emotions that you have felt. Have you ever been embarrassed? Have you ever had been rejected? Mm -hmm. You ever felt fear? You ever been sad? You ever experienced joy? That's what actors are connecting with. Not Mm -hmm. the details of the story, but the underlying human emotion. And if you feel that, your scene partner is going to feel it. And they're going to react to it. And so, yeah, can y'all tell? I miss it. I I need to find (laughs) me something. Anyway, Kayla. Oh. Gabrielle. Can I just be real, y'all? I've been calling her Kayla forever. She is Gabrielle, but I slipped. And we ain't even gonna edit it. Because you know what? We're being real. We're talking about authenticity. (laughs) Um, So I know you talked about like how... Um, how going back to how oppression may show up generally. Mm -hmm. But during the time when I was in with Professor Dickerson was when Cinderella came out, the one with Whitney Houston and Brandy. Mm -hmm. And we really got into this conversation about um, (laughs) like colorblind casting Mm -hmm. and then what makes sense. And I do remember looking at that and being like, I mean, it's plausible, but it felt like the characters were all over the place. Um, in regards to who they were casted as, which led into this conversation about exactly what you were talking about. You know, if it if the if the role calls for a lawyer, people automatically are going to think white male, mm-hmm. right? And and that's not what the 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 script calls for. It calls for a lawyer, but our own perceptions go into who should be cast in that part. Mm-hmm. So I guess what I'm getting at is specifically for you, mm-hmm. a beautiful Nubian, <laughs> brown skin queen with natural hair in yes. a full body. Mm-hmm. How has you, mm-hmm. yourself, and how you show up in the world, um, what's that been like for you moving into an industry where you are clearly other? Yeah, um, it's definitely something that I have to be aware of. Um, it's, it is something that I have made the choice that I am going to put myself out for roles and do monologues and do songs of, you know, stories that I feel like I can tell. And I'm not going to worry about if the person who originated the role was a blonde woman, a blonde skinny woman. Like, it, those things don't matter to me. If I feel like I have the chops to do it and I have the story to tell then why not? Why can't it change? I feel like the only time that really matters in terms of what it originated as is if that particular look needs to be told to tell the story. But there have been times where, you know, in college, I would bring in a song and they would be like, well, like, how about you sing um, I'm Here from, um, what is it from? The Color Purple. And I'm like, okay, yeah, like, that's a great song, but that's not necessarily, like, something that I feel like I can sing. But people automatically see a full-figured Black woman, they think, oh, she's going to sing soul. And then I come in singing, you know, operatic-style things, and they're like, um, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) So it, it definitely is something that I struggle with, this, like, not letting how I look affect how people are going to cast me and I always feel like I have to kind of put on a certain way to be this character that casting directors are expecting me to be sometimes 
But then there are also times when I'm like, but no, that's not how you, that's not, that's not who you are. You know, you sing operatic style music and, you know, you don't necessarily do things. I don't know. You don't, you're not, you don't do like stereotypical, like black things that people think black people do. Like you don't have to put on this black character to appease to these older white men who are casting these shows because they don't get that black people can be quiet they can be happy they can have joy they can be in love they can have all of these things and in the acting world like it just feels like the stories we always tell are downtrodden black people slaves this that and the third and sometimes you know I want to be in love or I want to be smart or I want to I want to feel good about myself in these roles that I'm playing. And it seems like in order to feel these this way, I have to go for roles that aren't for women that look like me. Mm. And there has been a time when I was like, well, I don't look like, you know, the ingenue. I don't look like the love interest. So I'm not going to do it. And it's like, no, you can be in love. You can be that girl. So. I think when I moved to New York, that was when I made the point in my brain to be like, you're going to go for the roles for the stories that you can tell appropriately. So that is how I'm living my life. That's awesome and powerful and passionate. (laughs) I can see the passion, but y'all can hear it. No, I love that. Um, I have to say that um, there was one role that I have seen portrayed and I instantly leaned over to Jay and was like, you know who I see in this role. I'm like, I see Kayla because that's what I called you. But I see Gabrielle in this role. And it is when we went to see Hamilton. Mm. And as soon as, so Peggy Schuyler, but Miranda Reynolds, when we got to that scene, I was like, yo, she would kill this role. And it, <laughs> again, it, it was just kind of, it was a very sultry, very seductive, but powerful mm-hmm role that I saw and I was just like man she would kill that so I'm just throwing that I way mean, out there speaking that into the I ethos I I'm just saying I really we said I said that and we went to see it a few years ago a couple years ago so I thought of that and that's awesome so I want to be clear you uh in your role of performance mm-hmm. it is musical theater right that is what I focus on but um I'm open to doing you know know tv film commercial voice acting stuff um but my focus is stage work Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so there are roles that you can audition for Mm -hmm. um what do you do to maintain hone and continue to work on your craft in between auditions in between roles and things like that classes on classes lessons just whenever you can get them in and staying up on what's happening as well in the industry. That's very important. Um, But yeah, it's just for me, I just take classes. I take classes twice a week when I was um, in the city and I took voice lessons once a week. Um, So yeah, but I know there are people who have more time to do other things like dance classes and all that stuff. I haven't really had the chance to do that when I was in the city, but it's all about just staying, you know, keeping the the machine oiled Mm -hmm. for sure. And is that your primary focus? Do you have to work outside of 
performance in order to okay yeah because i'm like new york girl that's 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 some expensive living so um it sounds like it's a it's a it's an act of harmony trying to get those things in balance yeah new york is expensive and it's so crazy like i feel like people don't think that being an actor is expensive but it's very expensive like classes four hundred dollars lessons for 30 minutes it's eighty dollars for most you know voice teachers um, you have to pay to get your headshots, and that's like three hundred dollars maybe. And then you have to pay for your dance shoes, and you have to pay for your website, and you have to pay for your agent, and pay for you're just constantly paying. And we get paid peanuts, you know. You, the job is auditioning, but you don't get paid for going to an audition and staying there for three hours when. You know, you took off three hours for work so you can go to pro studios and sit there for three hours and maybe not even get seen because you're in on equity, which is my life, you know? So it's, it, it is a very, I feel like people think what makes being a performer difficult is the competition, which it does, but it really is the finance. Some people don't have the funds to really focus on this career and make it happen for themselves. And that I don't know I get why some things are expensive but a part of me feels like it really doesn't have to be mm-hmm. and I think that is what keeps great talent greatly talented people from coming into these worlds telling their stories being a part of this industry and this community because they can't they just can't and that also goes into you know, Broadway shows being so expensive, that keeps people from going to see these shows and it keeps people out of this world and it feels like, oh, that's like a upper echelon thing to do or something that I, I can't see it or I can't see it unless it's on bootleg for free. And, you know, there are people in the theater community who are like, no, we're not bootlegging our, our videos because we need people to pay money. And it's like, but these people want to people who can afford to be in this world, want to be in this world. So how dare you gatekeep, again, gatekeep this world from people who can't necessarily afford it. There are people out there who want to do these things. And it shouldn't be like, well, if you don't have the money, you can't do it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think that was one of the biggest uh, takeaways that I got when Hamilton got to Disney Plus mm-hmm. is access. Mm-hmm. Now, I was one of the people who got to see it in Chicago, right? But I was also one of those people that was a graduation gift. <laughs> and I was like, word? Like, how much? It was so deep that the, the person giving me the gift said they were going to get J&I tickets mm-hmm. for my, my graduation to go see Hamilton. But the, t- the price range they gave me, I would have been sitting where? And so then I was like, all right, how about we combine that and that'll be one ticket and we'll just buy the other one. But... You know, when you got to put out a savings plan for yourself to go see a show, it limits access. And I have another good friend who grew up in New Jersey Mm. and she was and she ended up she's a friend now. She was a professor of mine. And she said how growing up in New Jersey, she knew that you could kind of go to the go on Broadway a few minutes before a show and then you would get discounted tickets. But how that's not commonly known. Right. So it does. um, It does gatekeep. The same way that certain areas don't have bus lines, yeah. right? And so it just seems like, oh, that's just how it is. But these are intentional efforts to keep 
keep something out of the hands of or out of exposure from certain people. So bringing that up, that that is a big deal. And I, I really appreciate you for sharing that. And it does sound expensive to me. The whole time you were talking, I'm like, she talking about all the money she's spending. Yes. <laughs> What's the money that, that you're making? making? <laughs> but it, it also sounds to me like that as... Um, as performers, you are just walking entrepreneurs. Yeah. The product is just yourself. And entrepreneurship is expensive, especially when you start. You know, you're spending more money to tell people you're here than you're making money mm-hmm. from that. And so I could relate to that for sure. Now, you mentioned competition. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about that a little bit. I work in a field where when people start talking competition, I roll my eyes and I say, you're stupid. Uh, One of my taglines for my business is the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. There are enough hurting people to go around. And so from a mental health, medical health, from a healthcare perspective, I think the idea of competition is very selfish um, because there are so many people who need it. And I had this grow up with this perspective of one of the most competitive, you know, um, arenas I guess you could be in was athletics Mm. and then one of my really really good friends she's a master violist and her husband is a doctor of composition and they black just saying um and I one had never met anybody more dedicated to their craft than Dorothy White Pueblo. okay I mean when she says I gotta rehearse I'm like yeah I don't put that much effort into it I mean so dedicated and I remember us talking about the competition so if you want a, what is it, an orchestra seat, you got to wait till somebody like dies or retires, essentially. Yeah. So that's one for how many people who are practicing just like her. And we got to talk about like so many um, musicians are single because it's hard to have a family. And, and I began to see the music world through this lens of dog eat dog competition mm. that it was. Interestingly, so is faith-based leadership. That's a whole different story and a whole different podcast. But these places where I'm like, word, y'all are really operating off of that much like competition. So what's competition like in the in the theater world? So I would say that there are definitely spaces where it is doggy dog world. Um, I have heard stories of people who in their, you know, theatrical education, it was doggy dog world. They felt like they had to work themselves to the bone. And that is a whole nother conversation with how Americans have been socialized to think that if you're not working, if you're not grinding, you are a piece of crap. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, we need time to just be a human being and relax. And um, I think there are definitely, there's this stigma in the city or just in, you know, the theatrical world in general that, If you aren't, you know, leaving work to go to your dance class and then going home to fix your resume and you're networking and doing this thing on the third, then are you really even pursuing this career? (laughs) And it's just like, okay, but I have a life. I have things that I want to do as outside of doing, you know, getting on Broadway. I want that, but I also, you know, want to be a good friend and also want to take care of my body and also want to sleep. Mm. So, um, it is, um, it's, it's, it's the, the competition is kind of wrapped in this whole idea that, you know, you have to be doing the most in order to get anything. And so everyone is kind of running around like a chicken with their head cut off, trying to appease to this idea that you have to be constantly moving, 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 grinding, grinding, grinding. Um, 
But I definitely think there are places out there and um, spaces out there where it's not that way. And it is, it's very clear that they, these people have a, a understanding that, well, yeah, I'm an actor. I love to do this. I want this to work for me. But also I have other things that I need to do and um, other responsibilities. And it doesn't feel so draining to be in these spaces. Um, it's crazy because when I first joined my acting class, I expected it to be doggy dog. I was like, okay, I have to have a monologue prepared for this class and I have to look put together and I have to come in like feeling and, and just exuding this energy of like a working actor. And I came in and these people were real and they were kind and they were genuinely supportive. And I was shocked. I was not expecting people to actually care about me as a human. Mm -hmm. And it, this, it, this is a space that I have, you know, never experienced until I came into that class. And then that opened me up to more experience, and not experience, but spaces where people are like that. So there is a side of the, the a theatrical world where, you know, people are just normal people. But then there is that side where it's like, you are a machine. This is kind of coming obsessive. This cannot be healthy for you to be functioning this way. Mm -hmm. So there is like a, a give or take. Well, thank you for exposing us to that side of things that I don't think that gets portrayed mm -hmm. very often. And so it's nice to know that it's there. As you were talking, my the clinician in me just had this moment. My heart started racing a little bit. And I was just thinking about all of the people who have been on the doggy dog side and then COVID happened. Mm -hmm. When your identity is wrapped up in something and that's taken away, that can really, really uh, deliver a fatal blow. So I just have this heart to hope that they found something they could cling to that, and hopefully that was themselves, that yeah. that COVID became an opportunity for people to slow down, step back and maybe reevaluate some things. But that's template stuff. I'm always talking about templates, you know, our beliefs, our worldviews and the behaviors that we developed in our family systems and social structures. Um, we learned how to be and what to do. And so I think in some ways COVID was devastating to a lot of people because of that. Mm. It took away, yes, livelihood, yes, earning potential, but it also in some ways shattered people's perspectives of identity. Who am I if I'm not a performer or a this or a that? And while I know that, you know, people fall in different areas of the spectrum on that, I really hope that people have been able to at least step back and do some of the things you talked about, take care of their body in a way that they weren't accustomed to rest. That's a foreign concept to so many people who are constantly striving I wholeheartedly reject that whole grind till you die. Like, like listen to that. Do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't have a nine to five. I have it from a sun up to a sundown. That sounds awful. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> what about quality of life? And the, the challenge about that is there is this misnomer that I'm, this is temporary because when I arrive, then I'll be able to rest. But they don't understand that that bar is constantly moving and they never arrive. Mm -hmm. There is no arrival point and until your body is too exhausted to enjoy even the fruits of your labor, if you even get there. So I'm glad that you have a balanced perspective mm -hmm. and even a balanced lifestyle toward um, 
performance in your craft and your passion. I think that's a really, really big deal. So that's awesome. Is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners just about yourself, about, you know, performance world or any advice you would give someone who's listening and saying like, I want to be a performer. Mm -hmm. I just don't know where to start kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I would just say the easiest way to break into the industry is to just do. (laughs) You have to just do it and you you know, it is nerve-wracking. Like, there are people who are like, I like to sing and I think I like to act, but I'm scared to do it on stage. You're only afraid of the things you don't do often. Mm-hmm. I remember my first performance in middle school. I was, like, getting ready to go out, and I just, my body was shaking. I remember thinking, I don't want to do this. I want to do this. I just want to go home. I don't want to do this. And then no one wants to feel nervous. I got on stage, and I was like, oh, this is fine. And after that moment, I was like, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to freak ourselves out before we go on stage. This is fun. You want to do it. And after that, I don't feel those nerves anymore. Like, I might get, like, a nervous poop before, but not... That's a dorsal vagal response. That's cool. (laughs) But I don't get, you know, so freaked out. And it just comes from just doing it and finding those spaces that can be, you know, singing in the church or, you know, when we can't do that again, or uh, there's a community show, go do it. You don't have a headshot and resume, fine. Take a picture with your iPhone, print it out, put, you know, your, your contact information, your name on a piece of paper, staple to the back and sign up. Like it's <laughs> that easy because if you don't start, you're always going to feel behind. You're always going to be like, well, Everyone else has this and they have that and they have a degree in that. That degree means nothing. I personally wish I would have just went to New York and just did. Just did. Whatever that doing is, I wish I just would have just done it. Because a part of me is like, well, I kind of wasted time on this degree. Granted, it's nice to have it. But it, you don't have to have that universe, not universal university education to do this if you have the passion you have the love for it just do it that's awesome so why don't you round us out by giving us a fun interesting or little known (laughs) fact about you i feel like i say this on every every like fun fact thing but i'm obsessed with reality tv (laughs) which is like could not necessarily be the best for my brain but I just love it and I'm kind of obsessed with it and my favorite show is Jersey Shore so a little bit of an oldie and I pride myself on having 75% of all of this the series memorized what wait I thought she was gonna say downloaded or even maybe accented but memorized I watch it a lot <laughs> I'm a little bit obsessive, so it's on brand for me. Okay. Well, man, let me tell you. Interesting fact indeed. Oh it's my goodness. Come in handy one day. I'm just waiting. Oh, it will. It. And we will have proof here that right like here. your foundation to whatever that thing is was laid with Jersey Shore. Exactly. <laughs> I'm just waiting. Oh my God, Gabrielle, that's so funny. So how can people get in touch with you? If someone heard you, they were intrigued, they have more questions, or they just want to get in touch with you. What I want to say to y'all though is girls' voice. It's amazing. Okay. <laughs> so rather it's just looking at one of her videos where she's seeing like, I'm talking straight up, beautiful, powerful, 
anointed voice. So check her out. So how can people find you? Yeah, so I have a website. Um, it's GabrielleThomas.com. And you can also find me on my personal Instagram, uh, which is Gabrielle's World. And then I also have a professional Instagram, which is like all of my acting stuff, updates, videos, anything that I'm posting about, you know, my career. That's going to be on GabrielleThomas.com actor and that's and those are both on instagram so i'm typically always checking um my website if you have any testimonials or anything that you want to say i'm always checking the inbox and then i'm always on instagram so (laughs) (laughs) you can always keep up be updated on what's going on in my life because it's gonna be on instagram that's awesome well gabrielle i thank you so 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 much for your energy and your passion and for being a guest thanks for being here with us You are welcome. So to all of my listeners, as usual, thank you so much for tuning in and spending time listening to my show. If you'd like to reach me, if you have suggestions for guests or content, you can reach out to me at www.thelaborsoflove.com. We're on all the major social media outlets. Don't forget our YouTube channel where every Thursday we put out a Therapy Thursday video. And don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Until we connect again, you all be well.